Welcome to Tax Breaks, the Moody's Tax Podcast, where you find informed discussions, lively debate, and sometimes a little lighthearted fun around tax issues in Canada, the United States, and around the world. Good day. My name is Kim Moody. I'm the CEO and one of the directors of uh, Canadian Tax Advisory for Moody's Tax. I'm here with my colleague, Kenneth Kung. Hi, everyone. Kenneth is a uh, uh, Canadian Tax Director as well for our firm, and as many of you know, regular listeners, uh, one of the smartest guys around uh, on Canadian tax. And today, Kenneth, we're going to talk about one of the sacred cows of, uh, of Canadian tax policy, the taxation of principal residences in Canada. Yes. So, interesting topic, and a lot of people think that it's an easy topic, but as you and I both know, it's actually quite a difficult topic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Lots of nuances, lots of, lots of complication. Right. So, so, we'll, so our objective today is just to you know blow through some of the myths and actually talk about what the law currently uh, is on, on around principal residences and you know quickly compare that to the United States perhaps we'll, we'll talk about that and then what are some of the changes that are being bantied about uh, in the press right now and you know uh, there's no shortage of uh, of leaks if you want to call it that that are being put out and uh, targeted articles and and we'll comment on some of that as well in terms of what might happen under Canadian tax policy, uh, just crystal balling. So so with that, why don't we start with uh, just the overall uh, background of principal residence. Uh, prior to the taxation of capital gains in Canada, which was introduced in 1972, we didn't have any taxation of principal residences, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you dispose of a principal residence, as long as it you know fit a capital gain, then Tax-free. Because capital gain were simply tax-free. That's right. And, you know, and that, and uh, as a result of the Carter Commission, which advocated for a buck is a buck is a buck, uh, capital gains became uh, taxable in 1972, and there was a bit of a compromise instead of going with the Carter Commission's report that 100% of capital gains be taxable. Uh, it was a 50% inclusion rate. So a buck wasn't really a buck. A buck really wasn't a buck, according to uh, <laughs> the, the, the parliamentarians back then. But um, I, I can see certainly the reasons why they, they landed on a, a lower inclusion rate. Um, but having said all that, because now capital gains were taxable, they needed to introduce a rule uh, if they did not want to tax capital gains on principal residences. And, and the parliamentarians back then thought, we don't want to. We'd like to encourage home ownership. Um, and so ever since 1972 and, and prior to that as well, principal residences have not been taxable in Canada. And just as a quick little history, and then I'll turn it over to you, Kenneth, for just the definition piece of it. Uh, that rule stayed in place until 1981 when they tightened up the principal residence exemption where you could only claim one principal residence exemption per married couple. Whereas prior to that, it would be one principal residence exemption per spouse so you could have two, you could have two principal residences per married couple. Well, that was found to be not consistent with public policy and good tax policy, so they tightened that down to one. So that was 1981, and um, you know the rules have been pretty much static uh, all the way to today's, you know, uh, today's uh, rules, with one exception, which we'll talk about later on the podcast, which is special rules for trusts and special rules for non-residents. Um, mm-hmm. So with that, Kenneth, you know, what are some of the fundamental things that you need to consider in order to be eligible 
right. for, for the principal residence exemption. So, so the most fundamental part of it is um, it, then, uh, it needs to be a capital property. Let's say, then what does that mean, capital property? There's, there's no bright line. And, and to one extreme, it would be someone who, who holds onto the house for a very, very long time, 20, 30 years to live in. And that would definitely be a capital property. Whereas on the other extreme, it would be someone who flip houses regularly and trying to say that every sale of, of the property is capital gain, saying that their property is a capital property. Remind me to talk to you about my uncle in that example when we talk about principal residence exemption calculations down the road. Mm -hmm. uh, or once you finish with the other elements, I'll just explain that. Yep. So once, once we determine it is indeed a capital property, then the next major component of this definition of a principal residence is that it needs to be a housing unit in which um, it is ordinarily inhabited by... Well, by what the hell does that mean? So ordinary inhabited in the year um, means you inhabit it ordinarily sometime in the year. The interesting part, it doesn't say how much of the year. So the, the prevailing view that has been accepted by the CLA is even if there's a small portion of the year uh, which the, the, the place is ordinarily inhabited by you, your spouse, or your child, then it would be considered ordinarily inhabited in the year. So for example, cottage. So Kim, you have a cottage. Yeah. Do you go do you do you live in your cottage every day of the year? Absolutely not. No. I wish I could, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, do you think you you but you you do ordinarily inhabit it part of the year yeah, that I, you're there? I do. And I think a key component there, Kenneth, and distinction is do I rent that property out? Mm -hmm. You know, is it a rental property? Right. In my facts, I don't rent the property out. I don't put it on Airbnb or, or VRBO, and I don't rent it out to anybody. And so it's clearly a personal use property. Yep. And clearly ordinarily inhabited by you right. sometime in the year. Yep. I spend probably anywhere from you know, 90 days to 120 days there per year. So do I ordinarily inhabit? I think under any reasonable assessment of the definition of ordinarily inhabited, I do. Mm -hmm. Now, what if... Kim, what if um, um, this year you had a family friend who wanted to rent your place for two weeks and pay you fair market value rent, fair market value rent for two weeks? Well, I guess the question then becomes, does that taint that property you know, from being a rental property? Mm -hmm. um, I would submit if it was just a one-off with a clear intent that it's just a personal friend, mm -hmm. probably that would be okay. But, right. but having said that, if you start all of a sudden you know, putting it on Airbnb and, and now it becomes, you know, a rental property. Now you're into a dangerous, uh, dangerous scenario there because that likely uh, constitutes a change of use of that property going from a personal use property to a, in, uh, you know, to a rental property. Mm -hmm. We're yeah. not going to talk much nope. about, or if at all about, you know, the change of use rules, but that would be the danger mm -hmm. of, of that, that issue. Yeah. And, and CRA's view on that is as long as any rental income is purely incidental, which is a uh, question of fact. <laughs> which is a question of fact, yes. And your primary use is still for your personal use, then you generally should be fine. But as Kim says, dangerous territory, uh, very fact-specific. Right. So what about the old mythology, Kenneth? And I'll go back to my uncle here in a minute. But, you know, no shortage of mythology, ordinarily inhabited. You know, all you have to do is live in the day. 
and that's ordinarily inhabited. Does, does that meet the test? Probably not, if it is just a day. Now, an extreme example is, well, uh, for, for, um, if I buy a house, I live in it for a day, and then next day I sell it. Right. That would be an extreme example. But, but I slept say, overnight, Kenneth. I made sure I had a bed in there, <laughs> and I slept overnight. Then it it goes into your purpose, right? Is your purpose really to inhabit the home? And I would submit probably not. Right. But what if it is your cottage, and because of, say, COVID, you weren't able to make it to your cottage except one night in a year? Yeah. Then I would submit that's that's fine. I think that's fine, too. But what I'm getting at is, is some of the myths that are out there, right? People think, unfortunately, and... You know, I've been the repository of many, many questions on this over the years. And my uncle is one of them. I'm going to pick on my uncle here. But, uh, you know, he, he would submit and many others that all you need to do is sleep in it one night. And it becomes, uh, it, it, it meets the definition. Yeah, I don't think so. And I think that's purposely why the parliamentarians chose that language, ordinarily inhabited. In other words... Is it your ordinary use of that property? Well, if it's one day, forget it, um, with a clear intent otherwise. So anyhow, we could go on and on on that topic, and there's lots of case law, but I just want to, to blow a hole in, in some myths. Mm -hmm. And another myth is, a common myth is that principal residence has to be a home in Canada. Yeah, and does it, Kenneth? No, there's nowhere in a definition that says it needs to be a home in Canada. So I can't have a second home in say the US and I can claim that as principal residence, except I may not want to because that jurisdiction, say the US itself have tax on the home and I may be just wasting my, uh, my principal residence exemption on that uh, foreign jurisdiction home. So it depends on the situation whether you want to take advantage of that. The most common there would be the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say you've got an Arizona property or a Florida property and and you dispose of it, and you think you want to claim the principal residence exemption for Canadian purposes, that's fine. But you're wasting it, like you said, because is Arizona going to uh, not withhold income tax, U.S. income tax, no. on the sale? No. And they're certainly, uh, for federal purposes, U.S. federal purposes, they have the right to tax that. So that would be a, a, an example of a complete waste of the principal residence exemption. Mm -hmm. So Because, as many of you know, you can... A family unit can only designate one uh, principal residence for each year. Yep. As we talked about earlier in this podcast, that rule's been around since 1981. So mm -hmm. what else forms part of this? I mean, the definition in the Income Tax Act, which we have open in front of us, is quite lengthy mm -hmm. and quite technical. So what else comprises right. so, that? So who can be the owner? So, of course, if an individual is the owner... And that place is ordinarily inhabited by the individual, the spouse, or, the, or that person's child. That it is a principal residence. What if um, the owner is not an individual? What if it is a trust? Well, prior to 2016, it could be principal residence of a trust as long as a beneficiary uses the the property of the trust. However, the rules change dramatically on that front. In, uh, in 2016, so that after 2016, the general rule is if the home is owned by a trust, uh, it can never be a principal residence. But as I said, there are, there are some narrow exceptions. And what are these narrow exceptions, Kim? 
Well, the narrow exceptions would be if you have an alter ego trust or a joint uh, partner or a common law partner trust, uh, which is a topic for another time, um, or a testamentary trust, I believe, off the top of my head, mm -hmm. created for, for uh, minor for minors, in, in, where the parent has actually passed away. Right, and so very rare uh, will you have those exceptions. But when you're using those trusts for for estate planning purposes, certainly you should consider that you can still hold those types of properties without without uh, you know damaging consequences, which is good. But mm -hmm. For any, for any other kind of trust, like a so-called cottage trust, which is you know common in the literature, which frankly is just a normal Canadian trust, inter vivos trust that holds property, uh, you can't claim principal residence exemption anymore from 2017 forward. Mm -hmm. So, not a good uh, consequence. Yeah, and another major change in 2016 is that. In the past, prior to 2016, when someone disposed of the principal res principal residence, you actually don't have to report anything in the tax return. But yeah. after 2016, you do have to designate, uh, report and designate a principal residence sale in your in your tax return. Otherwise, you will not get the principal residence exemption. Yeah, and I, and I think frankly that that change was long, long, long overdue, and yeah. and you know. People like you and me didn't make many friends in, <laughs> in the tax community by advocating for that change. Um, but I think a reasonable tax practitioner would agree that that was long overdue because there's so much abuse. There was so much misreporting and misunderstanding. And I'll, I'll use my uncle as, as an example shortly here. Uh, so stay tuned because it's a hell of a story. <laughs> right. So um, I also want to mention how about the size of land, right? Um, there's, um, as, you, as you mentioned earlier, uh, came to me that there's a lot of myth around yeah. how big that land, land parcel can be. Yeah. And so on that, Kenneth, why don't you just go to the provision and the, the standard rule while you're looking at that and getting mm -hmm. ready for this is that it, the, the only amount that you can claim uh, is the value associated with the housing unit and the immediate contiguous land up to a maximum of a half a hectare. Now, the ex half a hectare is roughly 1.2 acres. And so what if you have a five acres of land mm -hmm. and uh, are you restricted only on, on that uh, to 1.2 acres uh, of the value? What, what does the legislation mm -hmm. say there, Kenneth? It says, now, if that land is over half a hectare, then that excess shall be deemed not to have been useful... Uh, not to have contributed to the use and enjoyment of the housing unit as a residence unless the taxpayer establishes that it was necessary to such use and enjoyment. And by use and enjoyment, they mean that um, it's part of the principal residence. So in other words, if you have land over half a hectare that is adjacent, subjacent to the housing unit, you will need to prove to the CLA that that excess is necessary for the use and enjoyment of your home. Wow, come on, Kenneth, that's really easy. I mean, I've got five acres of land, I've got a, a house on, on, on the five acres, and I've got a great big swimming pool, and, and then you know a horse stable and, and a big driveway that cuts through a good portion of the five acres. I mean, there you go. It's necessary for the use and enjoyment because my horses are there and, and my uh, big driveway, so it's necessary. Does that work? Well, Probably not. 
Whoa. Not for the entire five acres. I would buy the swimming pool. Like <laughs> I, I, I do, I can understand why every morning. I need to go I mean, to the swimming pool. I, I, I'm exaggerating on the swimming pool because, <laughs> because you're not going to have a one-acre <laughs> swimming pool. <laughs> but but you better be able to prove that you need your horses to, to, <laughs> to, 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 to enjoy your home. Well, I'd say that's a losing argument. And as you know, the case law tends to reject so-called lifestyle cases, right? And and there's tons of case law on this kind of stuff. And and what does the court typically look at? Um, you know, there's a number of cases that the Federal Court of Appeals looked at that have kind of laid out the parameters on what, what's what's a good starting point to look at, whether or not it's necessary for the use and enjoyment. Well, one winning factor I sometimes find is um, um, that the land cannot be subdivided under exactly. local rules. Exactly. Because you, if you can't subdivide, you can't subdivide. So you need you need the entire piece of land in order to use your home. That's right. And that, that tends to be the starting point of analysis. For for astute listeners or you know amateur tax listeners, that's not the end of the story though. And so maybe we should just leave it that you know the minimum subdivision lot size is is a starting point for establishing um, whether or not that property is necessary, that excess land is necessary for the use and enjoyment, which then can maximize potentially your principal residence exemption claim. But again, it's not the end of the story uh, because has the subdivision lot size, minimum subdivision lot size, been reduced over the years, over the period of ownership? If so, how does that impact the claim? And you know what what are the real facts here? So it, all to say that it is a truly a question of fact. And anytime you stake or submit a principal residence exemption deduction or exemption uh, reporting, you need to be prepared for that kind of uh, attack at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. So, is it, is it now time to talk about your uncle? <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's talk about my uncle. So my uncle, you know, God love him, and I love him today. You know, um, and I've told this story many times, uh, even with Sierra in the audience uh, at, at a number of conferences, but. You know, he was uh, quite the entrepreneur and in the 80s and 90s and, you know, decided that he was quite the house flipper. And so he would acquire a house, you know, spruce it up, you know, literally move his family into the house for, a, for sometimes as little as a month and then sell it for some big gains, claim their principal residence exemption, and then, uh, and then move into the next house that he had already bought. Do the same thing, cycle, rinse, repeat over a period of a uh, number of years. Um, I can't remember the exact number, but it was somewhere around uh, over a five-year period he had done that same cycle over, with 13 homes. And how he, you know, how he survived his marriage and, uh, <laughs> and his wife raised you know, three wonderful cousins of mine is another story. But ultimately, he took the position that every single gain that he realized... Uh, which because he did over this five-year period uh, was was a principal residence uh, exemption uh, amount. Now let's think about that, Kenneth, based upon your definition. Mm-hmm. Do we think that that's capital property in those examples? No, I don't. I don't think so either. Um, how because, would the CRA ever find out? They won't. In that back back then, they won't because it, well, it's it's possible, but the detection risk is very low because. He wasn't required to report those disposition in order to claim the principal residence exemption. Right. So it's nowhere on the tax return. Right. The CRA will have to look at the land record and somehow see that, wow, 
your uncle is on title for 15 houses in five years. Right. That's yeah. the only way. Exactly. And so do we think that, you know, that those profits should have been taxed? In my opinion, yes. Mm -hmm. because they should have been. Those houses are inventory. They're inventory. They're not capital property. And so, you know, that was one of the big policy reasons, thankfully, that got changed uh, was to catch, you know, traders and flippers of, of uh, real estate, which, you know, flippers of condos have been kind of the hot topic over the last mm -hmm. number of years. But I think that change was long, long, long overdue. Because, because they now have to report and be damn sure, I'll be damn sure that um, if you report, if you keep filing a principal residence exemption every year for two, three years straight, CRA is going to be looking at yeah. seeing what you're doing. Absolutely. And so that was a hell of a good story, wasn't it, Ken? Mm -hmm. no, of it, course it, it was. It was, it was worthwhile waiting for yes. it. So how does, you know, as, as we set up for the last topic, which is to talk about some possible changes, how does Canada's principal residence exemption compare to our large neighbor? Mm -hmm. uh, so what do they do, Kenneth? So by large labor, I, I, I suppose you mean, of course, the U.S. That's right. Yeah. So our regime is much more generous in many respects compared to the U.S. Yeah. And the the most prominent difference is the size of our of our capital gain exemption. Um, our capital gain exemption is unlimited. I can be selling a $20, $20 million home for a $10 million gain, and what? I can do that five times in my lifetime. And they will, those gains will all be exempt. Come on, really? Yes, as long as I ordinarily <laughs> inhabit it in my in my manner, in my and mansion, it was, and it's a capital property, and all mm -hmm. the other yeah. the tests that you talked about. So, stopping there for a second, do you think that when the draftsman of the Income Tax Act created the principal residence exemption to exempt capital gains on dispositions of principal residence, do you think that they ever thought? that the possibility would be to exempt millions and millions of dollars of capital gains? I mean, probably we're crystal balling. Not. We're not crystal balling. We're looking back in time, obviously. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. My guess there, would be there, no. There were expensive houses back then, too. But, but not. But yeah. million, a million dollars back in 1972. I mean, I know you weren't born then, Kenneth, mm -hmm. and I was, but uh, that was a ton of money. Mm -hmm. Whereas today, it's still a ton of money, but... From a policy perspective, I'm not sure, and love to go back in time and see what they're thinking, but I somehow doubt that that they wanted to exempt t uh, principal residence gains that you know could be in the millions and millions of dollars. That's that's my suspicion. I could mm -hmm. be wrong. So, what does the United States do? Well, the United States, um, they they also have a principal residence exemption, but it is limited to a fixed amount of. $250,000 for a single individual or a $500,000 for a couple. Married couple, right? Married couple. Yeah. And uh, you have to, um, that home has to be that person's primary residence for at least two out of the last five years. Is that a continuous test or at any point in time? At any point, you just have to add up to two years out of five right. years. So compared to Canada and U.S., one is unlimited, the other is $250,000. One is possibly staying in it for a very short period of time, as we just discussed at length. Or at the U.S. style is you have to stay there for two years out of five years. Right. I can tell you from, a, from my perspective, at least, and this is my opinion, Kenneth, not sure what yours is. We'll see in a second. 
I like that. Mm -hmm. I like that rule because it's objective. It's less, uh, in my view, and of course the devil's in the details, right? What, what does a primary residence mean under U.S. law? And of course there's details there that need to be explored, et cetera, et cetera. Because you can get into the nuances of is this an investment property, is it a rental property, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a very objective test. Mm -hmm. Two out of five, and you've got a cap. So no matter how much mischief you play, you've got a cap. Yep. Whereas in Canada, you can have a lot of mischief, and it's an unlimited cap. So mm -hmm. I, I kind of like that, right? Because it takes away some of the arguments of, uh, oh, boy. So you can flip your home in Toronto and get gazillion dollars of gains um, but me and you know Stetler Alberta uh, I only get you know a small amount of gain how is that right so anyhow mm -hmm. uh, well I, I certainly like the objectiveness of of the of the bright of a bright line test like that um, but it also it will, it will make it really hard to claim to claim this primary residence on a cottage for example a cottage that you seldom go to use. Right. I, I guess the other argument too, Kenneth, which you and I have debated this behind the scenes, is especially with properties that have been held in, in cities that have gone up in value a lot, you know, inflationary gains, is it really right from a policy perspective to limit or limit that exemption on an inflationary gain when the cost of uh, reacquisition could be prohibitive? Yeah. And, you know, there's an argument there too. Um, but... I, I do like the simplicity. I like the objectiveness, which right now Canada's rules lack, mm -hmm. in my view. So, and just to, just to expand what you just said, I I think that I I don't necessarily think it is that unfair to have an unlimited capital gain exemption because of the reason you suggest. So, like for example, if I live in Vancouver and I sell a home and I have a three million dollar gain. Uh, and I move to a completely equivalent home of the exact same standard. If I do have to pay tax on that $3 million capital gain, I now don't have the same funds as I had before to buy that equivalent home. And I must downgrade. And that means I have to downgrade every single time I change a home. And is that fair? If I, are, you, are you saying that I have to... It's not... It, uh, the exemption is unfair because I'm choosing to stay in Vancouver and that I'm supposed to move to a cheaper city every time I change a home. Yeah, I, and I see that. I see that argument, and that's you know beyond my pay grade, frankly, from a public policy perspective. But um, you know, the simplistic point of view is what I've already said, which is, hmm, regardless of inflationary and you know uh, inflationary gains being taxed, which there's an argument that it shouldn't be. And regardless of you know reacquisition considerations, it's still an economic gain that should be taxed, right? And mm -hmm. that is a simplistic view. Um, but in any event, what what do we think? You know, given all the craziness that we're currently living through in COVID, and you know, um, you know, possibility of of some changes, you know, on, on foundational principles uh, coming up here with the throne speech on September twenty third. What are some of the things that have been thrown around that you know, we might see changes on taxation of principal residence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's very likely something will change. Like there is a lot of um, uh, anger in the country about people, because what what you were saying, Kim, like someone in Vancouver and Toronto making millions off their home sale and, and young people not being able to enter the market or people in smaller markets not having similar gains. 
And, and that unlimited capital gain exemption may be on the way out because people are, a lot of people are not happy about uh, the, uh, the ones who are the ones who are benefiting from this regime and, right. the, and the house price gains. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me either. I guess the, the downside to that, the counter, and, and you and I are certainly not politicians, but I mean, from a common sense perspective, I don't know if I'd want to be the political party that runs on that campaign of making changes to principal residence. Um, you know, rightly or wrongly, the Liberals were in the last election, you know, accused of, of, you know, potentially changing it. And I tend to think that that wasn't their policy. Uh, but having said that, um, you know, they got roasted for it. And I, I just think that that's a dangerous thing to do. Now, having said that, should they change? I, I do think, as I've already said, that they should change it. But politically, it's 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 a bit dangerous. However, having said that, Kenneth, there's lots of articles coming out on this. Mm-hmm. You know, that as I was showing you, you know, today, and, and today is September the 2nd, 2020, you know, you Google Home Equity Tax Canada, mm-hmm. you'll come up with a number of, you know, commentators and CBC articles and that, you know, where writers are advocating for home equity tax. But when you blow through some of the some of the smoke, it's not really that they want to tax existing home equity, uh, which I have some, I've seen some authors advocate for that, which I think is just a horrible idea. But I think what some uh, writers are mixing and confusing the concepts is that a home equity tax uh, versus amendments to the principal residence exemption are pretty much one and the same thing. Um, at least what I can tell mm-hmm. from some of the writers who are not tax people like you and I. And I do think there is a compelling policy oh, argument. Oh, to, they're, they're treating it as the same thing, but it's actually not really the same thing. Right. A, home, a true home equity tax is like a wealth tax. Right. It's like a property tax, except it's measured on home equity. But a lot of what these writers are confusing it with is basically they're advocating for reducing the capital gain exemption on uh, principal residence. Right. And... And I think there is a compelling argument to, to make some targeted changes, but uh, I'm not sure we'll see that. Uh, we may see a wealth tax, who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any event, it's an interesting topic. What else do we want to talk about, mm-hmm. if anything, or have we kind of beat well, this horse to death? Well, on that topic, so if you, if you think the principal residence uh, exemption is going to go away, uh, what are... And what are some of the things you heard about people doing oh, about yeah. that? Yeah, thanks for the reminder. Um, you know, I, I received a phone call the other day from a really good friend of the firm. He's an investment advisor, uh, you know, to, and uh, he was saying that he's come across people, um, accountants and, and other advisors that are, that are suggesting that people should transfer their, their cottages and, and principal residences, you know, their normal house to a corporation in order to lock in the principal residence exemption. And, I, and when I heard that, I thought, are you kidding me? And so, because it makes no sense on a whole, you know, a whole bunch of issues, um, and the, not the least of which is that if you transfer a principal residence or any personal use property, for that matter, to a corporation, that will invoke very, very punitive subsection fifteen one benefits, which are not easily calculated. Um, but the way that the courts, you know, uh, have have mandated that these benefits be calculated is is on a so-called rate of return uh, basis. A little bit too complex to discuss on a, on a podcast here, but let's just say that you wouldn't want to be a subject to it. You wouldn't want to be subject to an audit on this issue and an assessment. Mm-hmm. So the short answer is 
don't do that. Don't do any crazy planning to transfer existing principal residences or cottage properties to corporations or even trusts for that matter without getting good tax advice mm -hmm. on this. If they're, they're, yeah, if they're, there are ways to trigger. If you really want to trigger a gain on, on your home, it is possible to do so without having to transfer it to a corporation. Or a trust. Mm -hmm. And so so thanks for that reminder, Kenneth. But uh, yeah, I think, have we beat this topic to death and, and did a fairly good drive-by yeah. on it? Yeah, yeah, I think we did. Mm -hmm. So so I guess with that, good luck with your principal residence. We're always here to uh, answer questions and help you out. And thanks as always, Kenneth. Thank you. Good day, everybody. Bye now. Bye-bye.